Our reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. How about I pray as we get into God's word? Our Father, please open our minds to understand your scriptures this morning. May our hearts burn within us as we see the glorious truths of your Lord Jesus, our Saviour, our King. Help us to see your perspective on who we are as we wait for heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you like hiking. I like to think of hiking as camping plus bushwalking. And so if you go for a bushwalk and you go home the same day, that's not hiking, it's bushwalking. But if you go bushwalking and then you camp, that, that's hiking. Right? So uh, now that we're clear on hiking. But the, the, the first time I went hiking, early high school, I had never been before and I didn't have any gear. And so my friend was who I relied on for gear. And, and so we got, I, I got a pack that didn't really have a, a buckle that worked properly, and so it's you know, kind of heavy, and we used a tent from the local scout hall. And the problem with the, the tent was, uh, you can see a picture, oh, I couldn't find the actual tent. Uh, it had been discontinued in the local scout hall, and so we thought, why not, got it for free, and so we went hiking. Went for the first day for a bushwalk, and then we camped 
uh, the two of us in that tent, and that night it started to rain. And three in the morning, I felt this drip. <laughs> another drip, another drip, and it woke me up. And on the floor, there wasn't any floor, there was just water. A couple centimetres of water, and it turns out that the tent had been discontinued from the local scout hall because it wasn't waterproof. What's the tent for? If not to keep the water off, but that night we found out that the tent actually, one of those old canvas tents, and so the, the water it had perished in the UV and the water just dripped straight through. <laughs> and we got soaked on the first day of a multi-day hike. But the thing about hiking is that's, that's kind of unfortunate, but it's okay. Because you're going home, aren't you? You've only got a couple days of real discomfort, and then you're back in your warm bed. But hiking changes everything, doesn't it? So you, you go hiking, and for dinner, I've never had this for dinner at home. Uh, on the screen, actually, have you guys ever had Campbell's Chunky Beef Soup for dinner? You know, you, you think, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? I'm just going to pour it into the saucepan, heat it up. But when you go hiking, it's delicious. It's this wonderful meal. Uh, you, you have sayos for afternoon tea. Who, who does that? normally, but when you're hiking it, it's okay. The thing about hiking is it completely changes our perspective on how to live. And it's because it's only for a time, and then comes the warm shower, the warm bed, and the real hot meal, not Campbell's soup. That's the thing about hiking. But here's the thing about one Peter. Peter's going to show us that how to live as Christians on the way to heaven. That we are here for a time but we are journeying, we're hiking, if you like, we're passing through this earth into the next world, to heaven. How do we live on the way home? It's a profound perspective shift that Peter gives us. And this letter helps us to see how to live on the way home. And this first passage we're looking at is an extraordinary passage. And we're going to see God's perspective want us to lift our eyes to see God's perspective on who we are, what we have, and how to wait for heaven. We're going to see who we are, what we have, and how to wait for heaven. But have a look at who we are. Let me give you a little bit of context first, though. We see in verse 1 that our letter is written by Peter. He calls himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter was one of the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus when he was on this earth, when he walked, Peter saw him die. He was with him. He saw him rise from the dead. Peter was one of the 12 that Jesus chose to be his closest followers. And here, Peter calls himself an apostle, which just means one who is sent, one who is sent by Jesus Christ or Jesus the King. That's who, that's who Peter is. He writes, in about 62 AD to Christians in Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. So there's a map up on the screen. And there was a bunch of provinces. And so you can see they're quite spread out, his audience. He's writing to a whole range of Christians in that area. And verse 1, he says this. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So these Christians were scattered geographically. They were all over Asia Minor. But Peter says fundamentally they are united in their identity. Who are they? They are chosen strangers or exiles. We're going to unpack that a little bit. But first... 
Peter says they are chosen by God. That's what the word elect means, to be chosen. Verse 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Who are you if you're a Christian? You are chosen by God. The God who made the universe chose you if you are a Christian. It's an extraordinary claim. That is your identity if you're a Christian. You are chosen, you are handpicked by the God who made everything. Second, Peter says we are exiles. And here the, the NIV, I think, is a little bit... Uh, it, it's tried to capture the word, but they haven't quite got it because the, the word more means sojourners. The problem is we don't know really today what the word sojourners is, and so we, we go with exiles because it's a little bit easier. But a sojourner is one who lives in a place that isn't their home, which is a profoundly helpful image for us. Peter says we are sojourners here because though we live here, this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Chosen sojourners. We are on the road to heaven. And that radically changes how we live now. But notice that God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God is thoroughly committed to making you who you are. That's his project. Have a look, have a look back at the verses. We've been chosen by God the Father according to his foreknowledge. The Spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy, obedient to Jesus. And have a look at what Jesus has done. His blood has been sprinkled for us. See, on the cross, Jesus shed his own blood so that we could have life, forgiveness, be cleansed and come to be God's people. Do you see how God is thoroughly committed to making you who you are? Who does Peter say you are if you're a Christian? You're a chosen sojourner on the way to heaven. And so we are called to live differently. Don't get too comfortable living in this world because we're just passing through. Don't lose sight of who you are. This world is not our home. Second, what we have. Have a look down at verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What do we have? Verse 4. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's an extraordinary claim. Peter says, that is what you have if you're a Christian. Your inheritance is in heaven, and it can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so Peter says, praise be to God, verse 3. Look at what he has done to achieve that inheritance for us. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. See, when you become a Christian, it doesn't look like anything changes physically, does it? And nothing does change physically. But spiritually, there is something of eternal significance that's going on. When you become a Christian, you cross from death to life. Jesus says to Nicodemus that you must be born again of the Spirit to have new life. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You cross from death to life, new life, new birth. It's an extraordinary thing. 
And Peter says it's because of nothing we have done. It's because of the great mercy of God. That's what God has done for us. And he's brought us into a living hope through the resurrection. Now, our hope is living in one sense because we've been made alive by Jesus. We are alive. New birth. But more than that, who is our hope? Well, our hope is Jesus. And Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. He is risen. Our hope is alive. Jesus is alive, and he is our hope. The resurrection is our hope. And we've been brought into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, that inheritance is the new creation with Jesus, eternal life. And Peter says it's secure, utterly secure. But so often, I hear people talk, and I've thought like this as well, that uh, heaven is this kind of insubstantial reality that when we die, we will kind of, something will happen and we'll be with God, some kind of spiritual floating experience. I wonder if you feel like that about heaven. But as we think about this life, we can touch it, we can see it, we can taste it. And this life feels so real, but heaven feels so insubstantial, doesn't it? It feels like we can grasp now, but I'm not really excited about what's to come. But you see how Peter flips that completely on its head? Heaven is what is solid. It is what is truly real. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. The new creation to come is extraordinary because it is solid, real, new life. And when we are there, this world, this life, we will see so clearly then that this is perishing. Not only our life, but our world is fading. It will spoil. And this life, when we are with the Lord Jesus for eternity, will just feel like so much dust in our fingers. Because now, compared to then, is utterly insubstantial. Our hope is real and secure. Peter says it is so secure that God is keeping it for us. How can he speak with such confidence? of our inheritance to come? Why does he speak so certainly that we will have that inheritance? We've got to understand verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. Peter says, You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Peter says we are shielded by God's power through faith. Now I wonder if you've heard of the great ancient Greek myth, Odysseus, or the Odyssey. Anyone heard of the Odyssey? I'm oh, getting a few hands, a couple of blank stares. The Odyssey is a fantastic story of homecoming. So Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, has been fighting in the Trojan War for a long, long, long time. And finally, he sets out on his journey home. And on his way home, he comes across lots and lots of trials. But one of them, he's warned that there are sirens, which are kind of really scary mermaids. So, and if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, they've picked this up. They're like beautiful mermaids that act like piranhas once you're in the water. Uh, terrifying. And so he's been warned that the sirens, that the problem with the sirens is they've got this beautiful song that is so alluring that you just cast yourself into the water to your death. And Odysseus knows they're coming, and so he hatches a plan with his crew. He says, cover your ears with cloth. And you can see in the picture, some artists tried to depict that. They've covered their ears... And he says, row for your life. And Odysseus ties himself 
to the mast, the centre mast of the ship, so that he can hear the siren's call and won't fall into the water. And so they pass safely through, and Odysseus continues his journey home. But here's the question, what keeps Odysseus from falling into the water? Well, on the one hand, you could say it's the rope, and that's true. The rope ties him there, doesn't it? But imagine if the rope was tied to a little twig on the, on the boat. He's going straight over, isn't he? The rope is only significant in so much as it holds him to the mast. The mast is what keeps Odysseus on the boat. And the same thing's true for us. See, our faith in the Lord Jesus keeps us. Like the rope, but only because we've tied ourselves to one who can keep us. One who is so much stronger than we are. That's why Peter says, through faith, God is shielding us. Why? Well, because as we trust in Jesus, we tie ourselves to him, and he will keep us. That's the promise. That is where we rest our confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. He will keep us till the end. And so Peter can speak with utter confidence that we will have our inheritance to come. It doesn't depend on you or me. It depends on the Lord Jesus, and we can trust him. Which brings us to our third point, how to wait for heaven. Pick it up at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, remember the perspective we've been given. We are chosen sojourners, hand-picked by God on the way home. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And so how do we wait on our way to heaven, on our way home? Well, Peter says we wait with joy, even though we suffer. That is an extraordinary thing to say, to wait with joy even though we suffer. How can Peter actually say that? How can that be true? And here's where I want to offer a clarification. And I take it at the clarification that Peter himself makes. Notice he says, though that we suffer grief through many kinds of trials. Peter's acknowledging suffering itself is not our reason for joy. Suffering is a grief. Suffering is awful. The Bible maintains that really clearly. We do not rejoice because of suffering itself. But Peter says there are reasons for us to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And they're really, really compelling. Here's the first. We can rejoice in suffering because we know where we're going. Because of our inheritance. Our inheritance is in heaven. We are sojourners here. We are hiking. We're just passing through and we are on our way home. The last few years, I've been married for nearly three years to Paige. And the first couple of months before we got married, Paige started to get sick. We didn't really know exactly what was going on. She had a kind of 
loose diagnosis called fibromyalgia. It's kind of an umbrella term for muscle pain, chronic muscle pain. And the frustrating thing with that diagnosis is it doesn't really help you figure out what's going on or how to treat it. It's just the doctor saying, look, you're in pain all the time, all over, and we don't know why. And she, once we got married, the first week, actually, of our marriage, she started to get really sick. And she got really, really sick for the first six months, a year of our marriage. And over the last few years, we've been thinking a lot about pain, about suffering. And how do we think of it as Christians? And we've prayed for healing. And the Lord hasn't yet answered that prayer. But the Bible is clear, isn't it, that we live in a world of sickness and suffering. We will suffer grief in many kinds of trials. And God doesn't promise to take it away. But there's been something we have been so encouraged by and reflected on deeply. And it's in Revelation 21. It's one of the last chapters in the Bible. And it is an extraordinary passage. And so come with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21. Pick it up at verse 1. The the Apostle John sees a vision of heaven, and this is what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Skip down to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What an extraordinary inheritance. Now, it took me, and I think it's still taking me time to work this out. For years and for months, I couldn't say that, the word pain in that passage without tears. Because what a joy, a world with no pain, no death, no mourning, no no coronavirus, no sin. That is our inheritance, that is our home. And so Peter says we wait with joy because heaven is our home and we are just passing through. So don't be short-sighted in regards to how you live. See, if we can only see what's happening in front of us and what's happening to us right now, Suffering becomes incapacitating. It just becomes our whole world. Because when, we, when we're fixed on now, it's very hard to see God's perspective. And that's what we need to do. It's very hard to keep going. We need to see clearly, though, that there is a day in the future when God will wipe away all suffering, all pain, all sickness and death. We need to be captured by the reality of eternity to keep going on our way home. I wonder how often you think of heaven. I wonder when the last time you thought of heaven was. Are you homesick to be there? Or are you stuck in this world? Because that is our home. And so we can rejoice because we know that God is guarding our inheritance. Heaven is our home and one day we will be there. But the second reason Peter gives us for rejoicing is a little bit harder to come to grips with. He says we can rejoice because suffering refines our faith. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? It proves our faith as genuine. 
Now, the reason that's so important is because our faith is what will keep us going as we trust in the God who will keep us. And so suffering provides us an opportunity to refine, to test our faith. Because what suffering does, and Paige and I have reflected on this over the last few years, is, is what suffering does so well is it strips us of everything else we can rely on. It leaves you just feeling totally helpless. And in that moment, it is a wonderful privilege to cast yourself on God. Because you become so aware either of how failing you are to take control of your life, but just how worthy God is for you to give your life to Him. That's what suffering does. It teaches us who we really rely on, and so it refines our faith. See, if we're always in an environment of comfort, it's very easy to rely on ourselves. If we've got the means, the time, the money, the resources to just do everything ourselves, it's very easy not to grow. And so sometimes, God gives us suffering to refine our faith. Actually, there's a promise here that when we suffer, it reveals what's truly in our heart, and it refines, it tests our faith as genuine. And so we're able to suffer and yet rejoice because we can see what God is doing in us. And let me just say, if you are suffering this morning, it's very hard in the midst of it to come to grips with this perspective. Uh, But pray, sit with the Word. Uh, This is a long process that God will refine our faith through suffering. As we wait for heaven, we're able to rejoice. But as we wait for home, Peter urges us as well to be captured by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is where we'll finish this morning. Pick it up at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now, that is a massive claim that that passage makes. Still just saying that the prophets and the whole Old Testament was written in order to predict the suffering and the glories of God's Messiah, of Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to and is about Jesus. What a massive claim. Jesus says that he is the centre of the entire Bible. It's the claim he makes on the Emmaus Road, that the Scriptures make sense of him. And so the Old Testament only makes sense with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the apostles preached as well, by the same Holy Spirit. But notice that the the prophets in the Old Testament longed to know the time and the circumstances. The difference with the apostles, like Peter, they knew. They were there. They saw the sufferings of Jesus, God's Messiah, and the glories that would follow, his resurrection, his ascension, and the return we wait for. Which means we are in a, a wonderful position of privilege, aren't we? We know the time and circumstances. Do you see how desperately the prophets longed to know what you know? Jesus. The whole Bible is about his death and resurrection. And we know. And Peter says that by the same Holy Spirit, that is what's been preached to you through the New Testament as well. 
So here's some implications. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus, his sufferings and his glories to come, and his glorious resurrection, we cannot move beyond it. It's not something we learn and then move to other things. This is the heart of what we believe, that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and he rose again as our Lord. We can never move past that message. It is rich enough for eternity to dwell on that. And it is the heart of the Bible. The end of verse 12 says something funny, though, something kind of intriguing, that even angels long to look into these things. Strange thing to say, isn't it? But I think a better way to read the verse is that angels who are in God's throne room in heaven, what are they longing to peer into? It's like they're peering as through a distant window. What captures their attention? The angels in God's throne room, what captures their attention? It's Jesus. His sufferings and his glories. The angels are fixed, they're captured by Jesus, by what he has done the cross and his resurrection. If that is true of the angels, how much more should Jesus capture our attention? How much more should we be totally captured by Christ? And that's what Peter urges us to do. To take God's perspective, to remember who we are, what we have, that glorious inheritance and how to wait for heaven, how to wait for home. As we finish, I just want to read uh, this great old hymn 1800s American hymn called Wayfaring Stranger. It's been picked up by a couple of artists recently, but there's some beautiful lyrics. Let me read them out. I am a poor wayfaring stranger, just travelling through this world of woe, but there's no sickness, toil or danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going, going over Jordan I'm just going to my home. I know dark clouds will gather round me. I know my way is rough and steep. Yet beauteous fields lay just before me, where the redeemed no more shall weep. And so I will wear my crown of glory when I get home to that good land. And I will sing redemption's story in concert with the blood-washed band. I'm going there to see my saviour. I'm going there to praise my Lord. I'm going, going over Jordan. I'm only going to my home. Who are you? You are a wayfaring stranger. You've been chosen by God and you are on the journey home. What do we have? We have an inheritance in that bright land to which we go, where there is no more sickness, toil, danger. And how do we wait for heaven? Well, as the dark clouds gather round, when the way feels rough and steep, we go to the place where the redeemed, where we will no more weep. We go to be with our Saviour. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the extraordinary truth that you have chosen us, that you have handpicked us to be sojourners on the way to heaven, on the way home, and Lord, thank you for that glorious inheritance that is ours, the new creation to come, that it will never perish, spoil or fade. And so help us with joy in the midst of suffering to continue to wait for home. May we be captured by the things of Christ 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.